Hello to all of you and a very, very warm welcome um, to NSE's sixth annual literary festival and to this event, Short Stories, Deep Reflections. I'm Helena Cronin. I'm co-director of LSE's Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, and we are hosting this event, uh, which is why I'm here to welcome you. Um, this event is, has a happy ending, it is a happy ending, to a tale that began with this, this book. It's called Once Upon a Time There Was a Traveller. It's a book of short stories, some by leading well-known women writers, the others who were shortlisted for the Ashram Award. The Ashram Award is a very prestigious prize for short stories by new, unknown women writers. A friend of mine has a story in this book from the latest Ashram shortlist. And it was actually my discussions with her, I found very interesting discussions about this literary form that were the inspiration and the guiding light for today's event. My friend is Lynn Kramer, and she's in the audience, and I'd like to offer her publicly just my personal thanks. Uh, you might like to know that our centre is also hosting another event today in this same lecture theatre, half an hour after we finish at 1pm. Um, it's by the neuroscientist Giovanni Frazetto on what neuroscience can and can't tell us about our emotions. I think he's pretty strong on the can't and feels that uh, both literature and art can help us a great deal more than neuroscience, even though he's speaking as a neuroscientist. You'd be most welcome to come along to that too if you're interested. But back to this event. I'm really very delighted to introduce Cathy Galvin as our chair. Cathy is formidably a writer, a journalist, an editor, and she's also founder of Word Factory. It's an amazing organization that brings together outstanding short story writers for readings and masterclasses and creating new work. And they're also hoping to begin publishing soon. She's also co-founder of the Sunday Times EFG Private Bank Short Story Award. Cathy is a foremost champion of the short story, and I shall now put this event in her expert hands. Well, thank you, Helena, and Louise, and everybody for being here today. Um, and congratulations on organising such a wonderful literary festival. Um, and so we shall begin. This session is short stories and deep reflections um, and thank you for that introduction I'm going to ask our, our panellists Mary Evans, Antonia Byatt and Alex Preston um, a little about their relationship with the short story before introducing them mine is relatively new I, uh, and very simple I introduced short fiction to the Sunday Times magazine because I don't see a distinction between any kind of good writing um, but as time has gone on and also I've begun to try and attempt to write a few sh short stories I've realised the complexity of the form um, and value it more and more um, so today we've got an hour and a half uh, for this discussion so um, what will happen now is that I will introduce each of the speakers in turn and they will talk around the short story and 
uh, their passion for it um, for about 10 minutes each. We're also going to have two readings uh, from Alex Preston and from Antonia Byatt, which I'm very much looking forward to. Then um, we will have a general discussion here, and then I will open it up to everybody here to, to join in. Um, so please do participate. This is, although this is a lecture theatre, this is a very informal gathering, really. So um, we'll have people wandering about with who can hand you a microphone if you do want to speak. And I will try and be as fair as I can and just make yourself obvious to me if you do want to speak later. Um, there are books to be signed at the end of this session. Um, and also, I gather that this session is being recorded. There may be a podcast um, as a result of this. So please, you don't have to turn off your mobile phones, but just put them on silent. And if you are so uh, enamoured of the discussion today and want to tweet about it, that's absolutely fine. And the hashtag is uh, hashtag LSE LitFest. Um, so... I think we shall begin. Um, I'd first like to invite Mary Evans to come and talk to us. Mary is a centennial professor here at the LSE, based in the Gender Institute. And prior to coming to the LSE, she, uh, as a visiting fellow, she taught women's studies and sociology at the University of Kent, where Alex Preston, coincidentally, is also now teaching. Her work crosses the boundaries between the social sciences, uh, sciences and humanities, um, and her interests include narrative fiction, focusing on the themes of gender and class, and the impact of gender on the academy. Um, actually, from there, Mary, I hope, and do let us know if you can hear us okay, but I just want to ask, what's, what's your relationship with the short story? Um, it's a, well, first of all, I have to say it's a very long one, and it's also one of, I suppose, um, lasting affection. It's been a very long relationship. It's been a very happy relationship. And it's also, and I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, it's a relationship which started through one particular short story. And it's, so what I want to convey, I suppose, first of all, is just that my relationship with short stories is very happy and very long-lasting. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, and um, thank you for the uh, invitation to come and speak here this morning. Um, I've just said that my relationship to short stories has been a very long and happy one. And I want to start by talking about the short story that initiated this relationship. It's a short story by Guy de Maupassant, written in 1884, called The Necklace. It's a very short, short story. It's not one that pushes at the boundaries of the meaning of short it really is short. And for those of you who don't know it, it concerns a very poor couple living in 19th century Paris. They've been invited to a fashionable ball, and in order to go, um, the wife has to buy a dress, 
Once she's got the dress, the dress looks somewhat imperfect without any jewellery, and so she borrows a necklace from a wealthy friend of hers. At the end of the evening, which has been a huge success, she discovers that she's lost the necklace and spends the next decade of her life working to replace this necklace, which she assumes to have had, have had enormous value. By surprise, one day, many years later, she meets a friend who um, lent her the necklace and says, you know, I've, here's, we've managed to replace the, ne- the necklace for you. Um, and, you know, we do realise it was so valuable. The friend stands back in horror and says, what, that necklace? It was only a piece of old paste. It was virtually worthless. And... When I read this story at the age of about 13 or 14, I was truly shocked by it. I couldn't stop reading this story. I had to keep reading it. There was something compulsive about it. Can this be true? Why didn't they find out how much it was worth? Why didn't they check? Why why didn't they um, get some other advice about replacing this necklace? So it started asking me, uh, it started asking all sorts of questions for me. Um, and I, as I say, was really shocked and appalled by what I saw in this story as the waste of human life, the waste of human energy, the grinding poverty that the couple had to um, endure in order to pay for this necklace. It also started in me, of course, that terror, which I do assure many of you in the audience only increases as you get older, the terror of losing things. So if you see people clutching at various bits of their person, (laughs) you'll know that they perhaps have read this short story as well. But I also thought that the necklace, and this is where mature reflection took me some decades later... Um, to a number of, um, I suppose, ideas about this particular short story and the the short story um, in general. The first thing that I wanted to say is that I have come to wonder about um, our relationship with length in writing. I have a great veneration myself for very long novels. I mean, I am not a fan um, of brief novels, um, long novels. I find in many ways hugely satisfying and very rich. But I've also come to think that perhaps there is a difference between painting a very rich and necessary canvas... And, certain, and, on the other hand, simply portraying, describing everyday life. And I think this distinction ha- has become one which has become quite important to me when I encounter literature. What is actually going on here between, on the one hand, what might be a hugely rich narrative with which you engage over and over again, to which you return, to which you read endlessly over your lifetime, and also those novels which simply fill up six or 700 pages with an enormous amount of detail about a particular world. So I've come to think about the idea of length and the reason for length. And I've also come to think this, obviously, because I retain that sense 
of huge veneration for what is being said in a short story in a relatively limited amount of words. The second thing that I wanted to say is that, as was said in the introduction about me, I've been much concerned in my working life with issues of gender. I can see no connection between gender and the short story. It does not seem to me to be a gendered form. I think there are many other connections within fiction and within what fiction does, what fiction writes about, what fiction tells us, where connections with gendered experiences are very real and very important. But I do not think that in this case there is one which I have ever been able to detect. Other people in the audience may feel that this is not the case. But I did want to bring to your attention one very vivid example of a place where, or a situation in which the connection is seen very clearly. There's a remarkable film by the Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar called The Skin We Live In. And that film concerns gender transformation, the transformation of a very delinquent young man into a very beautiful young woman. Now, at the point where that, where the surgery, the other aspects of the transformation are having an impact on that young man and making him into the young woman, what is sent up with his lunch tray at a, and it's a tiny, tiny second in the film are the short stories of Alice Monroe. And I was, I was very fascinated by this when I saw it because I thought, that's very interesting, the equation of these stories with that shift in gender identity. And although I'm a huge admirer of Almodovar, I think in this case he got it wrong. I don't think that that association necessarily either should hold or does hold, the two things, of course, being different. The third thing I wanted to say, the next thing I wanted to say is about short stories is their connection, of course, with fables. The stories that engage readers from childhood onwards to engage with stories which have a point, a moral, a reason, a way of taking us from a narrative to a morality. That relationship, which of course is very true for all forms of fiction, but is nevertheless, it seems to me, often very sharply made in terms of fiction. Okay, so to return to where I started, to return to the necklace... The moral of the necklace is, I think, one where, obviously, you can ask the questions that, as a teenager, I asked. Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? But it's also, it seems to me, a moral which is in, as important in, 80, as in 2014 as it was in 1884. And that is the transitory nature of things. There's a title of a book which was much, written much later in the, in the late 20th century, which is All That Is Solid Melts Into Air. And that title is actually a quotation from Karl Marx, who at this very time that Maupasson was writing this story about the necklace, was writing about and asking us to think about the issue of commodities, the fantasy of the commodities with which we engage in our lives, the things we want, the things we have to have, the things which sparkle before us, before us like that very necklace in the story. And so I've come to think about this 
issue of the way in which, and it's very interesting that it would appear that somebody in this lecture theatre is going to return to this point after our meeting this morning, the point of the way in which literature can get the point of things or get to a point long before other disciplines get there. And it does seem to me that in his story, in the necklace, Maupassant gets to the point of commodities long before we got to them in the 20th century. He understands this fleeting nature of the things which we so like and we so love. But it also takes me on to think about a couple of other things. One is the way in which many short stories are organised around things, the things that people associate with, the things that are important to people. And one of the other short stories I read at the same time as I read The Necklace was Flaubert's story, A Simple Heart. I hardly dare open this book because the pages are so yellow that I think it's all going to fall apart. But the parrot in A Simple Heart is a very important part of the life of the peasant woman who is at the heart of that story. And that idea of the association between people, their lives and things seems to me to be a very important one which crosses generations, crosses societies in terms of short stories. But how do we know then, finally, this last point that I want to make here, is that short stories have this ability to get there before other disciplines catch up. And I've always thought that there has been, in a way, a kind of um, intellectual catch-up game between disciplines. And one of the things, as I've said about the necklace, is that I think Maupassant recognises something about the modern world, which is very specific, very important, and very lasting. He also wants us, I think, to explore ideas about what is real and what is not. He also wants us to explore ideas about appearance and reality. But having said that, I also think that at the same time, what goes with that suggestion of ideas that we might explore is actually our veneration, or sometimes perhaps it's not as strong as that, at least our greater respect for length in fiction. Because it does seem to me that sometimes the assumption that short stories belong to a different place is a very misplaced idea. I don't think that we should actually make this differentiation. So the final suggestion that I want to put before you is that sometimes in looking for this separation between the short story and fiction, we're looking for a false difference. We're looking for a difference which isn't there, a difference in point of fact, which is not great and is like the difference between the fake necklace and the real necklace, not necessarily a real difference. Of course, one was worth more, but they both sparkled, they both looked beautiful, and they both had a lasting impression that they could make on people's lives. So I've started by saying that the short story is one form of literature which has made a huge impression on me, and I would like us to think about the ways in which we should allow that impression um, to be part of a more general respect and indeed admiration for the form. So thank you.
so much, Mary. Um, there's much to think about there, those false differences, whether the short story can uh, perhaps make a moral and philosophical point in a different way to any other form of literature. Um, and there's much else besides that we will discuss this afternoon. Um, one of those questions will be, is the short story form something that's um, suited to our times because we have limited attention spans? Is, does that make it more attractive? I suspect not, but um, the question has to be asked. Um, and what are the impacts of creative writing courses where the short story is the form in which writers have to write in order to be marked. That does have an impact. It has a profound impact in the States. Um, and perhaps uh, Alex will reflect on a little of that as well when he speaks in a moment. Um, and I just wanted to mention, you know, we, we are, this is the year that um, Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize. And there has been a shift. I mean, we were talking earlier about the Folio Prize, this marvellous new prize, where the short story form is just simply part of that. It isn't regarded as something separate, and I gather that George Saunders is on um, the list this year, and the Costa Prize also is now rewarding short stories. Um, but it's a real pleasure to introduce Alex Preston to you now. Um, Alex is a, a mentor for the Word Factory, so we launched um, a scheme to help emerging writers, and very generously, um, Alex has been working with us on that. Um, his first novel, This Bleeding City, uh, won the Spears and Edinburgh First Book Awards. Um, his latest novel is published by Faber in June in Love and War. And um, you may be familiar with his work as a journalist and his appearances on the review show. And um, so I would love to introduce Alex Preston. Thank you, Cathy. Um, and it's lovely to appear with people to discuss the short story uh, when there was a time relatively recently when it felt like it was kind of a dead form. Um, and people like Cathy have done so much to resuscitate it. And we can talk about whether the Renaissance is really a Renaissance or whether it's, all, uh, it's been there all along. But I'd like to just talk very briefly about my own love of the short story, how it has affected me. And then I'm going to read a, a story to you, um, not one of my own, but one of somebody much better than me, uh, John Cheever. Um, I'd always loved the short story. It was a form that, that uh, appealed to me greatly, but, um, but was always terrified of writing it. Uh, always felt that it, it held the same kind of terror that I now feel towards poetry, uh, where people who are both more clever and somehow more emotionally in touch with themselves write these things, um, that, that I was, you know, I did the novel, that was, that was enough for me. Um, and actually, uh, you know, a, a short story prompted my, my first novel, it was Fitzgerald's Babylon Revisited, which seemed to me an extraordinary um, kind of uh, look into the future as we were just hearing about uh, 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 that this was an, uh, a short story written in the late 1920s uh, about the coming financial crash and it under seemed to understand what was happening in the world of finance much better than any economists did back then. Uh, anyway, reading that story made me think this is something I want to write about. And in fact, the, the hero of my first novel, Charlie Wales, is named not after the soon-to-be king of England, but after the hero of, uh, uh, of, of, that, uh, of that short story. Um, 
And then I started writing short stories. And the reason I wrote them was really because my publisher encouraged me to write them as kind of flyers for my longer fiction. That is to say, ways of introducing my work to people who maybe didn't want to take on 100,000 words. And, uh, and then very quickly I saw that it was something more than this, that actually the short form was something that enabled me to experiment, that enabled me to take risks um, that I maybe wouldn't elsewhere. And so when I started teaching... Uh, it became very obvious to me why the short story is at the heart of creative writing courses. I'm a lecturer at the University of Kent um, in creative writing, and uh, one of the first things I do with my students is sit down and I read them two stories. Uh, one of them is Axolotl by Julio Cortazar, um, which is an ast- astonishing story about a, uh, a man going to the Jardin des Plantes in, um, in Paris and, uh, and, and slowly transforming into this strange salamander creature. Um, if you don't know it, go, it's, you can access it online for free. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, the other story I read is Reunion by Cheever. And what I think this does is that a lot of people come on creative writing courses with a relatively good idea of the themes they want to write about, the sort of novels they want to write. They have plans for their uh, you know, epic trilogy about dragons or whatever it happens to be. Um, and actually, I can't do much to change their minds about what they want to write about. What I can do is get them to focus on the sentence, on the craft of writing good sentences, on the craft of characterization, on how to get their language to sing sentence by sentence and how to really hone away at the excess baggage that almost every writer, I think, starts out with. Um, What this story by Cheever, I think, tells you is how little you need to give readers, how much of ourselves we bring to stories and how really good literature leaves space for the reader to populate the world of the story themselves. What I'd like you to do as I'm reading this is to listen to the details we get, both in terms of description of the father and the son, um, but also in terms of backstory. How much here are we given and how much do we have to assume, do we have to uh, come up with on our own? It's in working with the writer that we as readers make the imaginative leap into the world of the story. And it's what sucks us into stories, is having to do a little bit of imaginative work. Um, uh, It was uh, Stanley Kubrick who said uh, that those writers who provide everything to their readers um, remind him or, or struck him as like going to a dinner party and having the host chew the food for you and then put it in your mouth. Um, Cheever here is, is serving you a, a small but delightful and delicious meal uh, and he's leaving you to do the chewing for yourself. So this is Reunion. And I, sorry, one other thing. I must apologise. I'm half American, and my American accent is perhaps worse because of that rather than bad. So I'm not going to do much of one, but I'll do a little bit. But anyway, apologies in advance. The last time I saw my father was in Grand Central Station. I was going from my grandmother's in the Adirondacks to a cottage on the Cape that my mother had rented. And I wrote my father that I would be in New York between trains for an hour and a half and asked if we could lunch together. His secretary wrote to say that he would meet me at the information booth at noon, 
and at twelve o'clock sharp I saw him coming through the crowd. He was a stranger to me. My mother divorced him three years ago and I hadn't been with him since. But as soon as I saw him, I felt that he was my father, my flesh and blood, my future and my doom. I knew that when I was grown, I would be something like him. I would have to plan my campaigns within his limitations. He was a big, good-looking man, and I was terribly happy to see him again. He struck me on the back and shook my hand. Hi, Charlie, he said. Hi, boy. I'd like to take you up to my club, but it's in the 60s. And if you have to catch an early train, I guess we'd better get something to eat round here. He put his arm around me, and I smelled my father the way my mother sniffs a rose. It was a rich compound of whiskey and aftershave lotion, shoe polish, woolens, and the rankness of a mature male. I hoped that someone would see us together. I wished that we could be photographed. I wanted some record of our having been together. We went out of the station and up a side street to a restaurant. It was still early and the place was empty. The bartender was quarrelling with a delivery boy and there was one very old waiter in a red coat down by the kitchen floor. We sat down and my father hailed the waiter in a loud voice. Kellner, he shouted. Garçon, camerieri, you! His boisterousness in the empty restaurant seemed out of place. (coughs) Could we have a little service here, he shouted. Chop, chop! Then he clapped his hands. This caught the waiter's attention and he shuffled over to our table. Were you clapping your hands at me? He asked. Calm down, calm down, sommelier, my father said. If it isn't too much to ask of you, if it wouldn't be too much above and beyond the call of duty, we would like a couple of beefeater Gibsons. I don't like to be clapped at, the waiter said. I should have brought my whistle, my father said. I have a whistle that is audible only to the ears of old waiters. Now, take out your little pad and your little pencil and see if you can get this straight. Two beef-eater Gibsons. Repeat after me. Two beef-eater Gibsons. I think you'd better go somewhere else, the waiter said quietly. That, said my father, is one of the most brilliant suggestions I have ever heard. Come on, Charlie, let's get the hell out of here. I followed my father out of that restaurant and into another. He was not so boisterous this time. Our drinks came, and he cross-questioned me about the baseball season. He then struck the edge of his empty glass with his knife and began shouting again. Garçon, Kellner, Camerieri, you! Could we trouble you to bring us two more of the same? How old is the boy? That is none of your goddamn business. I'm sorry, sir, the waiter said, but I won't serve the boy another drink. Well, I have some news for you, my father said. I have some very interesting news for you. This doesn't happen to be the only restaurant in New York. They've opened another on the corner. Come on, Charlie. He paid the bill, and I followed him out of that restaurant and into another. Here, the waiters wore pink jackets like hunting coats, and there was a lot of horse tack on the walls. We sat down and my father began to shout again. Master of the hounds, tally-who and all that sort of thing. We'd like a little something in the way of a stirrup cup, namely two bibs and geefeaters. Two bibs and geefeaters, the waiter asked, smiling. You know damn well what I want, my father said angrily. I want two beefeater Gibsons and make it snappy. Things have changed in jolly old England, so my friend the Duke tells me. Let's see what England can produce in the way of a cocktail. This isn't England, the waiter said. Don't argue with me, my father said. Just do as you're told. 
I thought you might like to know where you are, the waiter said. (laughs) If there's one thing I cannot tolerate, my father said, it is an impudent domestic. Come on, Charlie. The fourth place we went to was Italian. Uh, per favore, possiamo avere due cocktail americani? Subito! The waiter left and spoke with the captain, who came over to our table and said, I'm sorry, sir, but this table is reserved. All right, my father said, get us another table. All the tables are reserved. The captain said, I get it, my father said. You don't desire our patronage, is that it? Well, the hell with you. Vada l'inferno. Let's go, Charlie. I have to get my train. I said, I'm sorry, Sonny, my father said. I'm terribly sorry. He put his arm around me and pressed me against him. I'll walk you back to the station. If there had only been time to go to my club. That's all right, Daddy, I said. I'll get you a paper, he said. I'll get you a paper to read on the train. Then he went up to a newsstand and said, Kind sir, will you be good enough to favor me with one of your goddamn no-good ten-cent afternoon papers? The clerk turned away from him and stared at a magazine cover. Is it asking too much, kind sir? My father said, Is it asking too much for you to sell me one of your disgusting specimens of yellow journalism? I have to go, Daddy, I said. It's late. Now, just wait a second, Sonny, he said. Just wait a second. I want to get a rise out of this chap. Goodbye, Daddy, I said. And I went down the stairs and got my train. And that was the last time I saw my father. And in terms of the emotional impact, in terms of giving you a fully formed word, world in 900 words... I think that story is near perfect. But the wonderful thing about the short story is there are many, many examples and a a whole world of different stories that are just as good as this. And I think that, you know, one of the things I hope we get out of today is, is simply for more people to read the form, for more people to write it. Uh, and for more people to discover people like Jiva, who, you know, is le- read less and less these days. So um, thank you for listening to that. And uh, pass it back to Kathy. Well, I hope that was recorded, because I just think that was the definitive uh, reading. That was fabulous. Thanks very much, Alex. Um, It's also interesting what Alex is saying about the rules that apply to the short story. I've heard, um, when I was being taught how to write them, that the short story has to exist in a paranoid, cohesive world, and it has to be more than one story, and that there has to be a shift of vision, all of which exists in that story. When Antonio Byatt was writing the introduction to the Oxford um, book of the English short story, she, she, she said that she was... I'll see if I can find the quote. She said that as she was reading story after story after story, she began to have a dislike for the well-made tale and the fleeting impression, i.e., where the rules are broken, that's fantastic too. Um, it's a real joy to introduce Antonia Byatt to you. Um, you will, in a sense, you, she needs no introduction. We are all um, deeply uh, uh, proud and uh, of her work. Anybody who's read her work knows what a towering figure she is on the literature scene. Um, 
nominated, uh, winning the Booker Prize for Possession. I'm currently reading her recent book, Ragnarok, which is fantastic. The End of the Gods, a retelling of the Norse, Norse myths, really, from a, from a child's perspective. Um, and she also was a fantastic judge for a couple of years for the Sunday Times Short Story Award. And I was just astonished at the range and depth of her knowledge and the way that she knows everything that's going on, um, not just in that wonderfully um, deep academic way, but she's very trendy, actually. She knows absolutely, she knows all the emerging writers and what's really happening. And um, So, yes, um, personally just thrilled to introduce Antonia Byatt to you. Hello, I'm mostly going to read from one of my short stories, but I I thought I would start by talking about how my relationship with the short story developed. Um, When I was a girl, I lived in books, I lived in stories. I read an enormous number of short stories because I never stopped reading. I read Woman's Magazine, a woman's own magazine, and I read a collection of short stories that I think came out monthly that my parents received called Argosy. And I read novels, and there was no doubt in my mind but that novels were more interesting. I, I, I wanted a very long story in which I could lose myself. And the short story stopped just as I'd begun to lose myself in it. And I found this very irritating. So um, when I went to university, I read novels and always wrote about poetry because you could learn it by heart. And then I started writing very long novels. And I just knew that my form was the very long novel. And I went on and on and on, rewriting my first novel. And it got longer and longer, and there was something wrong with it, and this got more and more irritating. But in the end, it did get published. Um, My relationship with the short story, I was thinking as we were talking, is almost entirely to do with death. Um, I went to see a surgeon um, with a sort of pain and a lump in me. And he said, he poked me about quite a lot, and then he said, you better come into hospital. So I said, I'm extremely busy, I can't come into hospital until September, I have a great deal of work to do. And he said, you will come in next week. (laughs) And I walked out onto the pavement, and I remembered um, the heroine in The Wings of the Dove receiving her death sentence and walking out of the front door of the doctor and looking at the city. And I thought, oh my God, this is quite possibly a death sentence. Um, And I did manage to get sort of interested in it, as as well as sort of being very anxious. Um, And I started walking to the London Library where I was writing my very long novel. And I thought, you're going to have to learn to write very short things because you're not going to have any time. And there was, the newspapers said, death of famous author, death of famous author. So I bought an evening standard, and it was the death of E.M. Forster. So I thought, 
dear, dear, and went into the library. And then I started writing this story. Oh, then I bumped into an old friend of mine who was completely insane. And he believed that something terrible was going on. He was being directed by the Russians to go and get the atom bomb from Israel. And he went on about this. I've slightly forgotten that bit. But there I was in the London Library on the day of the death of E.M. Forster, um, having been told all this stuff. So I started writing a story which was ultimately published, and the title of that was On the Day That E.M. Forster Died. And it's a true story, and it's not really a story by a short story writer. It's a story by a very long novelist who felt that she had to write something short, and every time I read it, which isn't very often, I can feel this going on. Um, I then, my second death thought about short stories was um, I've now got so many ideas as opposed to so few that I'll have to learn to do some of them short because I haven't got life in, this was after the operation had happened and I had recovered um, and I hadn't died, as you can see. Um, I... Um, I started writing short things, really, because there was going to be too much and there was not going to be enough time. And then I discovered that I enjoyed the form. And then I was asked to edit the Oxford Book of English short stories. And the stress is on English, because the editor said every book of English short stories actually has Americans and Irish and all sorts of people in. And you can have Scottish short stories, you can have Welsh short stories, but English is rather nasty, not quite right. So I collected lots of English short stories, and they didn't, they were not well-made things. They went all over the place. They turned round corners. They changed style. They changed direction. They were terribly exciting and, and not perfect at all. Um, and it was about, you know, it was later than that, but it was part of the same discovery that you can do anything with a short story. Um, I read a wonderful article by Michael Shabon who had been told, had read something that said a short story can only have one thing in it. It must be an epiphany. And he took this word epiphany to task and he shouted at it and turned it round in circles in all different directions and, and said a short story can do anything it wants but it's better if it's not an epiphany. Um, and I felt this was speaking to me who was a, a long person writing short. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to read now from a longish story, so I can only read some of it, um, that I wrote. It's in my last book of stories. And um, like most of my stories, it began with a kind of metaphorical vision rather than a narrative structure. Um, and it's the story, it's called The Thing in the Forest, and it's the story of two children at the, very, at the beginning of the Second World War who are evacuated to the north of England. And they go off in a train with all the other evacuees. And they find themselves sleeping in this completely unknown room in this large mansion house. Um, and I think, I think that's where I'll start. Children in those days, wherever they came from, were not closely watched, were allowed to come and go freely, 
and those evacuated children were not herded into any kind of holding pen or transit camp. They were told they should be back for lunch at 12.30, by which time those in charge hoped to have sorted out their provisional future lives. It was not known how they would know when it was 12.30, but it was expected that, despite the fact that few of them had wristwatches, they would know how to keep an eye on the time. It was what they were used to. Penny and Primrose went out together in their respectable coats and laced shoes onto the terrace. The terrace appeared to them to be vast and was indeed extensive. It was covered with a fine layer of damp gravel, stained here and there bright green or invaded by mosses. Beyond it was a stone balustrade with a staircase leading down to a lawn, which that morning had a quicksilver sheen on the lengthening grass. A gardener would have noticed the beginnings of neglect, but these were urban little girls, and they noticed the jungly mass of wet stems and the wet vegetable smell. Across the lawn, which seemed considerably vaster than the vast terrace, was a sculpted yew hedge with many twigs and shoots out of place and ruffled. In the middle of the hedge was a wicket gate, and beyond the gate were trees, woodland, a forest, the little girls said to themselves. Let's go into the forest, said Penny, as though the sentence was required of her. (coughs) Primrose hesitated. Most of the other children were running up and down the terrace, scuffing their shoes in the gravel. Some boys were kicking a ball on the grass. The sun came right out, full from behind a hazy cloud, and the trees suddenly looked both gleaming and secret. Okay, said Primrose. We didn't go far. No, I've never been in a forest, nor me. We ought to look at it while we've got the opportunity, said Penny. There was a very small child, one of the smallest, whose name, she told everyone, was Alice. With a Y, she told those who could spell, and those who couldn't, which surely included herself. She was barely out of nappies. She was quite extraordinarily pretty, pink and white, with large pale blue eyes, sparse little golden curls all over her head and neck, through which her pink skin could be seen. Nobody seemed to be in charge of her. No elder brother or sister. She had not quite managed to wash the tear stains from her dimpled cheeks. She had made several attempts to attach herself to Penny and Primrose. They did not want her. They were excited about meeting and liking each other. She said, now, I'm coming too into the forest. No, you aren't, said Primrose. You're too little, you must stay here, said Penny. You'll get lost, said Primrose. You won't get lost, I'll come with you, said the little creature, with an engaging smile made for loving parents and grandparents. We don't want you, you see, said Primrose. It's for your own good, said Penny. Alice went on smiling, hopefully, the smile becoming more of a mask. It will be all right, said Alice. Run, said Primrose. They ran. They ran down the steps and across the lawn and through the gate into the forest. They didn't look back. They were long-legged little girls, not toddlers. The trees were silent round them, holding out their branches to the sun, breathing noiselessly. We have to be careful not to get lost, Penny said. In stories, people make marks on tree trunks or unroll a thread or leave a trail of white pebbles to find their way back. 
We needn't go out of sight of the gate, said Primrose. We could just explore a bit. They set off very slowly. They went on tiptoe, making their own narrow passages through the undergrowth, which sometimes came as high as their thin shoulders. They were urban and unaccustomed to silence. At first, the absence of human noise filled them with a kind of awe, although they would not have put it to themselves in this way, as though they had got to some original place from which they or those before them had come and which they therefore recognised. They admired from a safe distance the stiff, upright, fruiting rods of the lords and ladies, packed with fat red berries. They stopped to watch spiders spin, swinging from twig to twig, hauling in their silky cables, reinforcing knots and joinings. They sniffed the air, which was full of a warm mushroom smell, and a damp moss smell, and a sap smell, and a distant hint of ashes. I'm now going to get my water, which I should have brought with me. Thank you. (laughs) Did they hear it first, or smell it first? Both sound and scent were at first infinitesimal and dispersed. Both gave the strange impression of moving in, in waves, from the whole perimeter of the forest. Both increased very slowly in volume, and both were mixed, a sound and a smell fabricated of many disparate sounds and smells. A crunching, a crackling, a crushing, a heavy thumping, combined with threshing and thrashing, and added to that a gulping, heaving, boiling, bursting, steaming sound, full of bubbles and farts, piffs and explosions, swallowings and wallowings. The smell was worse and more aggressive than the sound. It was a liquid smell of putrefaction, the smell of maggoty things at the bottom of untendered dustbins, the smell of blocked drains and unwashed trousers, mixed with the smell of bad eggs and of rotten carpets and ancient polluted bedding. The new ordinary forest smells and sounds of leaves and hummus, fur and feathers, so to speak, went out like lights as the atmosphere of the thing preceded it. The two little girls looked at each other and took each other's hand. Speechlessly and instinctively, they crouched down behind a fallen tree trunk and trembled as the thing came into view. Its head appeared to form or become first visible in the distance between the trees. Its face, which was triangular, appeared like a rubbery or fleshy mask over a shapeless, sprouting bulb of a head, like a monstrous turnip. Its colour was the colour of flayed flesh, pitted with wormholes, and its expression was neither wrath nor greed, but pure misery. Its most defined feature was a vast mouth, pulled down and down at the corners, tight with a kind of pain. Its lips were thin and raised like welts from whipstrokes. It had blind, opaque white eyes, fringed with fleshy lashes and brows like the feelers of sea anemones. Its face was close to the ground and moved towards the children between its forearms, which were squat, thick, powerful and akimbo, like a cross between a monstrous washerwoman and a primeval dragon. The flesh on these forearms was glistening and mottled, every colour, from the green of mould to the red-brown of raw liver to the dirty white of dry rot. 
the rest of its very large body appear to be glued together like still wet papier-mâché or the carapace of stone and straw and twigs worn by caddis flies underwater. It had a tubular shape as a turd has a tubular shape, a provisional amalgam. It was made of rank meat and decaying vegetation, but it also trailed veils and prostheses of man-made materials, bits of wire netting, foul dishcloths, wire wool full of pan scrubbings, rusty nuts and bolts. It had feeble stubs and stumps of very slender legs, growing out of it at all angles, wavering and rippling like the suckered feet of a caterpillar or the squirming fringe of a centipede. On and on it came, bending and crushing whatever lay in its path, including bushes, though not substantial trees, which it wound between awkwardly. The little girls observed with horrified fascination that when it met a sharp stone or a narrow tree trunk, it allowed itself to be sliced through, flowed sluggishly round in two or three smaller worms, convulsed and reunited. Its progress was achingly slow, very smelly, and apparently very painful, for it moaned and whined amongst its other burblings and belchings. They thought it could not see, or certainly could not see clearly. It and its stench passed within a few feet of their tree trunk, humping along, leaving behind it a trail of bloody slime and dead foliage, sucked to dry skeletons. Its end was flat and blunt, almost transparent, like some earthworms. When it had gone, Pemmy and Primrose, leaning on the moss and dead leaves, put their arms around each other and hugged each other, shaking with dry sobs. Then they stood up, still silent, and stared together, hand in hand, at the trail of obliteration and destruction, which wound out of the forest and into it again. They went back, hand in hand, without looking behind them, afraid that the wicket gate, the lawn, the stone steps, the balustrade, the terrace, and the great house would be transmogrified, or simply not there. But the boys were still playing football on the lawn, a group of girls were skipping and sh- singing shrilly on the gravel. They let go each other's hand and went back in. They did not speak to each other again. That's the beginning. Thank you, Antonia. Wonderful story. Like overkill with words. Want <laughs> <laughs> to know how it ends? Um, I'd like to pick up on Mary's early point, uh, which came in two parts really, which was whether the short story uh, as a form can carry a moral or philosophical point more effectively, or whether in fact it's a, it's a false uh, idea to think of fiction having forms that deliver things in that kind of a way. But I'd like to address this to this question to Antonio first. Does the short story form um, allow deeper moral and philosophical points to be made effectively, more effectively than in a novel? It allows, it allows them to be delivered more sharply because it's so short. I love that Maupassant story, which gives you one psychological shock and makes one moral point. Um, I've just been writing something about Middlemarch for The Guardian, which has got a great big piece today, on Middlemarch. Middlemarch is exactly the opposite. Every moral point is mitigated by some other moral point. 
in, in Middlemarch because there's room for it. Mm-hmm. And a short story... I mean, it doesn't say one thing. I've been arguing that you can say two things or three things in a short story, but it, it is constrained. Mm-hmm. It has to make a point, sort of, even if it's the point that it's not making a point. Yeah. <laughs> and Alex? You know, I, I think one of the things that some of the best short stories do is astonish you by how much they manage to cram it. I was thinking of Laurie Moore's story, Willing, which is the story of, of a, whole, a woman's entire life told in 2,500 words. And I think, uh, but Antonia's absolutely right, that what you get there, you get this incredibly sharp and poignant uh, moral message from that story. What you don't get is the shading around that. What you don't get is a more complex, uh, developed philosophical... I think maybe one might differentiate between moral and philosophical, but I think the novel uh, has the length to be able to be philosophical. I think it's difficult to write a short story that has uh, a broad enough palette to give you all of the equivocations and uh, self-contradictions that are there in any profound moral situation. I'm also interested, you both came to writing short stories um, later, starting as novelists, Um, and I'd like to ask you both, what difference that made to your writing generally? Perhaps with you first, Alex. Um, you know, I didn't do a creative writing course myself, and I think the reason why a lot of people start writing is again that they they go to creative writing courses where, at the end of your term, you you turn in a, a short story of four thousand words or whatever it happens to be as 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 your assignment. Um, for me, what the short story has done to my writing is enabled me to be more daring and more. Um, uh, I think inventive in the longer form because I try out things. So I, uh, I'm currently at that lovely stage where you know I've got a book coming out. I'm just starting to think about what I'm going to write uh, for the for the next novel, and it's always a, a very exciting time. But but one of the things I do, I read a lot of things that seem linked to whatever I, uh, whatever I want to write about. But then I write short stories that seem to me to explore aspects that I think are going to interest me for the novel. And, I'm, I'm resistant to think of it as a as a form that I only use as as a way of you know as a kind of stretching exercise for the for the longer writing, um, because I do think that, that things come out of it that have a, a, a value of themselves. But I don't think I've ever quite lost the sense that it is my second eleven and the first eleven is 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 the the, lo- the longer form. Yeah. I do exactly what Alex says he does. Um, I write short stories between novels when a novel is sort of going through the press and the next one is a few inchoate ideas in a notebook. I don't think I write the short stories... I don't think they have anything to do with the novel, my short stories. They, they just come to me quite suddenly and I take intense pleasure in knowing what the end is when I'm at the beginning... Because if you're writing a very long novel, I mean, increasingly I don't start writing a novel until I've got a sense of the whole thing, which means I do very few drafts now, as I used to go endlessly on making mistakes. But a short story, you can see the end coming, and it's an intense pleasure. Um, the other thing is, um, you can't afford to write a bad sentence in a short story. 
you can write umpteen bad sentences in a novel and not really um, no person, no reader is going to read every sentence you wrote in a novel every time they read it even if they read it five or six times they skip some other little bit by accident and so a novel is more provisional it has room to go wrong it has room to have a whole chapter that doesn't quite work, but is part of it. But if you, if you go wrong in a short story, and I read a bit out there that I know I should have cut. Um, <laughs> um, I've, read, I've done it before, I've read it, but not for many years, that story out loud. And every time I read it, I think that should have been cut. What would you have cut? So I'm curious. I'll, I'll find it in a minute, but I've, I've just got the idea in my head. But um, and in that way, reading is a very interesting way of seeing what the form is, because you can tell when you're mm. saying something that didn't need to be said. Yeah. And... Um, Yes, I encourage all of my students that, I mean, they have to read their work out loud. And I think it's, you know, for any of you who are writers here, uh, you know, I think having the ability to almost see your work in the third person, where you see it out there and you, you speak the work, you, you find all sorts of flaws that aren't there when you're reading through it in your mind. I think this is true. Um, I'm wondering whether, given that what you said, Alex, about it not being in the first division necessarily for you, do you think um, the short story form is worthy that co- writers who write primarily in that form and produce collections should be there regarded in the first rank of, of writers and should be awarded prizes, etc.? Oh, yes. Uh, um, Alice Munro has been mentioned in various... I didn't know that about Alice Munro on the table um, in the operating theatre. I think Alice Munro is a great writer unreservedly. Lydia Davis, I would add to that, as somebody who I think is absolutely at, you know, one of the greatest living writers and doing extraordinary things in the form, and, and very few of them are, are more than half a page long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not only Alice Munro, I mean, there are many, many, and in many ways I prefer Virginia Woolf's short stories yes. to her novel. And I Fitzgerald, think... and Hemingway, you know, I think a lot of those uh, yes. writers were, were much better in the short form. And then there was a wonderful one called A.L. Barker. I don't know if anybody here remembers. Yes. A.L. <laughs> Barker was a wonderful short story writer, and she was writing, she had a job on The Listener, and she wrote away, and her name, she was called Pat Barker, which is now confusing. But, um... She wrote wonderful short stories, one after the other, and the publisher kept saying, try a novel, because we can sell novels better. And she tried novels, but she was a short story version. Her novels were a bit like, slightly stretched out. <laughs> but you know, it would be nice for her to be back in print and everybody to be reading her. Do you think uh, there has been a revival for the short story form, or really has it never gone away? No, there's been a revival. You think? I think it did go away. And um, unless you were the sort of person that could sell a story to the New Yorker, um, out of which people did make money. Yes. Which is why the short story writers had allowed the New Yorker editors to murder their stories, because they needed the money. (laughs) um, But the sort of... Magazines that used to publish them, like the Argosy, which my parents took, disappeared one by one. Um, all publishers will tell you exactly the same thing. We can't sell short stories. Please write a novel. And I think um, you know, it's partly things like what you were doing at the Sunday Times. It's the fact that the internet 
can afford to carry short stories that people can go and quickly read and say, I like that one. Um, there's a sense of a sort of world full of short stories which you can access in a way you couldn't when you had to buy a book and there weren't many books. And um, well, it's done for it's done for the sh- for the story rather what iTunes has done for music, which is it's enabled you to say there is a story I want to read. I will go and read just this. I don't have to buy the whole book in order to uh, in order to read this one story. Uh, I'd, I'd question, uh, I think, how much the e-reader you know there's this idea that people are sitting on the tube in the mornings and reading you know uh, Cheever or whoever on that Raymond Carver on their on their iPads I, I don't know I listened to a podcast of Dan Franklin who's uh, at Random House in charge of their kind of um, uh, e-strategy and he was saying he thinks that it's absolutely driven by the, the, the renaissance in the short story is because people are reading these things on their e-readers uh, I'm, I, I would question that, I'm not sure I mean I know you uh, launched a, a, a digital imprint I, I just don't know I think that what this is about is about people writing more. I think the world of writers, as people are self-publishing, the world of writers has grown, and people taking greater interest in the craft, in how the short story plays into their own writing. Do you think the the American creative writing courses are having too big an impact on the way the short story is formed? Uh, I'm thinking of places like the Iowa School. There are lots of MFA courses producing amazing uh, writers from the States, but they do write in a very particular... Well, actually, the last time Antonio and I met was at a conference in, uh, at, up at UEA, and the head of the Iowa Writing School was, uh, was there, and, and I put exactly that to him. I said, I think the writers you put out are very are, are wonderful. It would be nice if they were just a bit more different from each other. Um, and uh, there are so many examples of that creative writing prose, um, and some of it is very good, and it's meticulous and perfect, and it maybe comes back to something Antonia was saying about when she was editing this book, that... Um, that I like things that take risks and sometimes fail and I think that there is such a culture of workshopping and uh, so workshopping in these creative writing seminars where they will read out a short story and everyone will have a view on it and they will rewrite it taking into account all of these views and they will have something that's incredibly polished but depthless at the end of it and I desperately try and encourage my students to to make mistakes to push themselves into directions that maybe they don't feel comfortable with because that's where I think great writing comes from I'd like to open this up now to the audience Um, so please put your hand up ah, and it'd be great if you could introduce yourself as well, you don't have to it's always nice to have somebody's name That's very true. Um, my name is Federer. This is a question for um, Alex. I'm just interested to know on what you just said. When you uh, put that question to the head of the uh, Iowa MFA about the... <laughs> what his answer was. Yeah, well, I, I'm really curious to know. <laughs> yeah, no, I should have. Sorry. That's the, yeah, um, Can I just check that everybody heard the question? Yeah. Um, his answer was, of course, to give me any number of examples of, of where that isn't true. Um, but I think 
Yes, he didn't answer it to my satisfaction, and I was, uh, I was actually there was a novel that, that received an enormous amount of praise, The Yellow Birds by Kevin Powers, who was uh, recent novel it won the Guardian First Book Award, and it was it was in some ways an absolutely extraordinary novel. It was a novel about the war in Iraq. Um, and uh, a very, very literary treatment of the Iraq War. And this was somebody who had been there. Um, and what I was thinking I would come to when I read that book was a, a, a really kind of intense engagement with what it was like to be there. In fact, he went straight from the war in Iraq to a writer's programme, I think at Iowa. And actually what you get when you read that book is not the war in Iraq. You get a kind of uh, a, a, the, the campus of a, of, of a university and you get, it, it is, Antonio just said exactly this, it's the rhythm. That these things have a very, very similar rhythm and it's something that maybe we don't think about when we're writing or even when we're reading. But if you read enough of them, it's somehow you, they, they all of the sentences sound the same. You think, here it comes again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it might be about this or it might be about that, but it's got the same tempo. There's the same little shock in the same place. Uh, but controlled. But All controlled. And um, you think, you know, I, I could be reading the newspaper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's very difficult. It's a challenge for us. As, so, you know, those of us who teach creative writing, it's how to get people better without getting them too good. Um, because actually, it, it, that is the trouble, that, that you, you get novelists and, and short story writers who are, it's, you can't pick a flaw except that it doesn't do that thing of making you suddenly go, oh my God. And that's what you want to do as a writer, and that's what we want as readers. It makes you marketable. Ladies. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> um, we'll start with this gentleman here, and then we'll move over here, so if you could just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Uh, I hope that works. I can't hear it myself. Do you hear me? Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm John Saul. I, I write short fiction. Um, and I would like to add my voice because I still hear a, a reservation about uh, short stories somehow not being the equal of novels. And I think that um, a, a couple of things that were said, for example, that there is room to go wrong in uh, writing novels, whereas short stories strive at excellence. As a reader, I've always sensed this uh, feeling of excellence, and I've, although I love novels, the sprawl and the space and the room to go wrong and the way you can skip bits and... Um, has made me realise that really um, there is no question in my mind that the short story is every bit uh, the equal of the novel in general terms. Do you have a question to ask the panel? <laughs> do, you, do we agree? Well, well, I'm not sure if you, you kind of... I do sense reservations. Are we reserved? I think I was being reserved about my own short stories rather than short stories in general, hmm. um, that I, you know... I still don't think that I am as good at short stories as I am at novels, but then I haven't been writing them for as long and I, I, I haven't perhaps focused on them as much. Um, I think a great short story can be every bit as good as a great novel, and I think sometimes they can feel like they hold almost as, as, as much. Uh, I think they are, you know, I think they are a different form, and I think they do do different things, and I think there are different satisfactions of the short story. Uh, and it is about craft, it is about that sentence by sentence um, uh, thing. But 
Um, you, you know, I, there are bad short stories, there are bad novels. I think it's all, all down to who is writing them. But I, I, there is, uh, to answer the question that's sort of there, uh, absolutely, I don't see it as an inferior form in any way. Could we also hear from Mary Evans, please? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I apologise. I've been yeah. directing a lot of the questions to the writers of, of these stories. Yes. And I've been very happy to hear from them. So, um, But I would, I would like to say that I don't see any mess... I'm interested, um, and this is perhaps the way that social scientists or sociologists, as I am, go, why there is this difference in value attached to short stories and novels. Why make this distinction? I mean, I can see, obviously anyone can see the differences in style, the differences in possibilities, but why do we have to take that to making what, in effect, very often are hierarchical judgments. You know, novels are important, they belong to some kind of canonical tradition. Short stories, well, they're very nice, but they're not important in the same way. I don't know the answer to these questions, but I think these are actually important questions to ask about why these distinctions are made, where they come from, what supports them. And I do sometimes wonder, you know, in my most reductionist moments, if is that what we value about novels is that we just value production. Um, and I keep going back to that absolutely crushing remark that... Uh, um, the Emperor Joseph made to, to Mozart, you know, when he said, too many notes, Mozart, too many notes. <laughs> Do you think? Of course it was completely, in my view, the wrong judgment in that case. But you also wonder about what it is that makes people have this determination to say, oh, well, it's just a short story. When, as I hope I suggested, I think short stories are a huge, immense, lasting and incredibly... Um, effective value, and I mean effective in saying something to the reader that the reader takes away with them. And I think, you know, obviously writers and how writers engage with their craft is hugely important, but it's also very important in terms of... But literature is also very important in what readers can take from what is written, what it does to the imagination, what they can think about at the, at the end of engaging with fiction. So those would be my Thank you. And uh, there was a question from over here. Hi, my name is Rebecca Swirsky and I write short fiction. Um, the question that I have is actually for, for everybody who, who's sitting um, today. Um, but I thought that it was interesting that Antonia had linked the short story to death because that's the premise of my, my question. And also that nearly all the stories... Uh, which have been discussed seem to have lost as a central spine. Um, I'd previously been to a lecture with Ali Smith, who made a very strong argument for the short story being inextricably linked to death, that because the end is near, um, it's infused with its own mortality, that it's, it's grappling with the end. And there seems to be this, this idea that when we're confronted with our own mortality, we have a, a kind of certain clarity. And so I guess the question that... I have is that listening to Mary Evans raise the point about literature perhaps getting to the point before other disciplines whether what you thought about death being in that mix and the short story having that connection that potential connection to death and, and how that works. I will start with Mary and whether the short story is really closer to concepts of death 
perhaps other forms of literature? It's a very interesting idea. I mean, I've never, I would not think of the short, sto- the short story in that way. I mean, what I would connect the short story with and a driver of it from, I think, for over um, a considerable period of time is the is the cultural emphasis towards sensation because I think once one aspect of the short story which perhaps is encouraged in the wrong way at certain writing schools is the idea of making a very quick sharp point which is a cultural global north um, engagement with the way in which we present ideas to each other now there's a kind of an implicit death in that in that if we sensationalise aspects of our lives, we cut ourselves off from other aspects of them. So I would suggest that, yes, death, but I think I would make also those other connections about it. Alex? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was just thinking about um, James Salter, a great American novelist who really began to write short fiction and been writing it, I guess, since the 70s, but that he really began to focus on his short fiction. There's a wonderful story called Last Night um, about a botched attempt at at euthanasia that I recommend you read. Um, But yes, I think uh, I I, I do see something. And and again, we were talking uh, about those short stories that feel like they can contain a whole life and how difficult that is and and how brilliant when it comes off. Antonio, of course, you did start with a death story. I I think um, a lovely phrase, the sense of an ending, which Frank Kermode used for a book. Um, Almost all novels, the ending is unsatisfactory unless it's something like Pride and Prejudice, where the ending is implied in the beginning, and you're just reading to get to that ending. But there's a sort of, a sort of wonderful thing that David Lodge used to say about the more the novel gallops towards the end, the more unreal it becomes. And I think this is true. Writing the end of any novel, I find, is very painful because it's not death, it's not clear, it's not clean. You might just as well not stop there because this is meant to be going on and on and on. Um, Whereas the story, I think you're quite right, the story does require you to have the sense of an ending at the beginning. And you can see it's short. um, And you feel terribly let down if it doesn't end properly. (laughs) I'm conscious of time. um, And and also, you know, there's a gentleman right at the back there. We'll take a few more questions. So please do put your hand up uh, after this question. Just waiting for a moment. Very quickly, um, can you comment on Jean as a way in which the short story has developed? I'm thinking science fiction uh, pool, which might have had something to do with the fact that that form hadn't got a proper access uh, to the literary world in those days, in the 50s. But there might be other genres that you can think of which also uh, are a way in which uh, the short story is kept alive. It's a very interesting question about genre, um, and uh, the gentleman mentioned um, science fiction, but ghost stories as well, I, I think, seem to have disappeared from our discussion. But yeah, the place of the short story in different genres, and, and where, the, um, where the, they're being drawn more now into being regarded as literary fiction for the first time. 
I don't know. I have a lot to say. I, I, I see it, and I see you would apply different rules. And you're, I mean, when I say rules, different attitudes, and you're thinking about a science fiction story, does it do this, does it do that? Um, I don't read many. And ghost stories I somehow subsume into, into reading either ghost novels or... Um, no, I think probably you would answer better. <laughs> um, no, it's a, you know, that... The, uh, one of the, I think, two things I would say about it. Firstly, uh, there are so many places to publish science fiction, ghost stories. There are websites that, that specialise in, in that. Um, but, but the other thing you're seeing a lot of, um, particularly with crime fiction, is these very short... I mean, Amazon has actually launched this. Uh, it's called Amazon Firsts, I think. And, they're, um, uh, and they are, uh, if you like, again, acting as flyers. They're 99p. Um, and uh, Lee Child has done one. Karen Slaughter has done one. These are you know, absolutely first-rank um, crime writers incredibly popular uh, crime writers writing these um, you know 10,000 word or 7,000 word stories that maybe are you know strained towards novellas um, and have been incredibly popular the numbers sold are, are, are just astonishing um, also uh, given that we've got the Oscars coming up it's worth pointing out that uh, Gravity which may win um, is based on a Ray Bradbury short story and I don't think anyone that, that isn't something that is kind of that's a, you know it's another name that has been sort of forgotten yes Hello, my name is Cheryl Moskowitz, and um, I, I wanted to comment um, on the, the, the value placed on short stories in, in relation to novels. I mean, I think it feels like there's something to do with value for money and, and you know, the brevity of short stories. But what was interesting, what's been interesting for me is, is the short stories that, that the panel have made reference to, Mary, um, t- talking about the necklace as one which, which impacted you as a child and stayed with you. That, and, and also when, when um, Antonio Bait, um, talked about writing about poems because you could memorise them and hold on to them. And I think there's something about the, the, the portability and the, the holding on to the short story. And I wondered about the heart, the, the, the fact that perhaps there's a way of identifying um, in some of the best short stories that stay with us that, that there is a heart to them. And so in terms of actually conceiving short stories, I just wondered from the two writers on the panel whether in some ways you've talked about knowing the ending before you start writing, but I wonder whether you think about the heart, whether somehow you identify what the heart is, what you, what you want to be saying with a story before you then pack the story around that heart. I'm going to ask only Antonia to address that because um, we want to get through a few questions rather quickly. I was thinking as you were talking... Um, when you have an idea for a narrative, how do you know whether it's going to be a short story or a novel? And I always do know, and I think it's because of what you said, it's because of the heart. And a short story has um, a kind of kernel, and you don't want any more than that 
except developing it and polishing it in the story, whereas a novel is a beginning of something that's going to spread. Um, depending on the length of the novel, it's going to spread in many directions or just one. But I think that's what it is. I think you do recognise if the kernel is the most important thing. OK, thank you. And there was a... Um, yes, just here, please. We can have a microphone. Thanks. My name is Christine Nichols. Um, I teach English as a foreign language, which makes me very interested in use of language, but also in reading and listening. And my question is, when you, and this is inspired by Alex's comments, uh, uh, when you're starting to write, how much do you think about the reader and how much do you think about potential listeners? Listening question is very interesting. So, Alex. Um, well, I think, firstly, that thing about reading out loud, that I think that I read all of my work, even novels. I will, my poor wife has to lie there silently suffering as I <laughs> hit word 83,025. Um, but, but uh, you know, again, it's one of those things. There's a lovely um, website called uh, Read Me Something You Love, and it's got a whole host of writers reading their favourite stories. There's, of course, the New Yorker Fiction podcast, which is wonderful. Um, I also, and you know, really what has, has driven my recent engagement with the, the short story is, is working with Cathy and, and with the Word Factory. And, and what an amazing, uh, you know, these readings where you have people who are fascinated by the form and you have a rapt audience and they, you, you read. And, and so I absolutely, it has made me think much much more about what the words sound like out in the open air. And the two people on this bench here, please, will be our final, putting our final questions. Andrea Lowe asking as a reader rather than a writer and more of novels than short stories. We haven't spoken at all about anthologies. Um, and I'm just wondering how many people read a short story on its own. If I had an anthology or collection, I probably would read however long my commute went for. And I wonder if some of the dismissiveness of a short story is the fact that it's packaged with a number of them together. So some must be more perfect than others. I'd be very interested in comments on that. Well, I'll answer very quickly in that I think... Um, uh, there's a new phenomenon as well, which is the linked short story. So people like Jennifer Egan, even David Van, Legend of a Suicide. This seems to suit marketing people more, where there's a kind of continuity be between a, you know, groups of stories in that way. Um, Antonia, can, uh, as editor of the Oxford Book of the English Short Story, can probably comment very effectively on this. I think um, I take your point about reading an anthology. If you come across two or three that you don't like, the whole book begins to sink, including the ones you did like. Um, this is, I mean, it means that an anthologist has to be very, very careful not to include something that isn't top rate, um, I think. Um, I started thinking about novellas. I th perhaps they are fragile because of what you find them next to, the short story. I did a lot of judging for the, I can't remember the name of it, but the big American short story prize. Um, they publish a volume, and then they get two or three people to pick the best 
one out of the volume, and then they don't pay you for three years. <laughs> but um, I, I found that rather dispiriting in some ways, because there were some works of genius in these volumes. And then there were just things that were dutiful short stories, even in these you know, selected volumes. And, um, I mean, if you've got a dutiful novel... I've got a friend who always uses the phrase, and then I threw it across the room, he says. <laughs> and if you hit a novel that isn't working, you throw it across the room. If you hit a short story that isn't working, you quite often have finished it and judged it before yeah. you... Th- and that's, that's sad. Yeah, that's true. And uh, just next to, next to the lady who just spoke... Thank you. Um, it seems to me that this is also an era of storytelling, and I'm thinking about This American Life podcasts and this real resurgence of um, a stand-up storytelling in front of live audiences. So I was wondering if you talk about the intersection between writing versus those who may not be short story writers, but who do a lot of speaking to large audiences and telling their stories. Alex, perhaps you could... Well, I mean, one of the things, you know, one of the areas that I love most of, of, of what I do is from our own correspondent on the, on the BBC. So these are, uh, you know, short 700-word snippets of, uh, of, of visits to different places. Of, of, uh, and, and that seems to me to use many of the same skills as writing short stories. I certainly think the edges between fiction and reportage are blurring. I'm going to, very, very sadly, uh, draw this session to a close now because we, we do have to move on, but we can continue the conversation outside with the book signing. But before we leave, I'm going to just um, put each of the panellists on the spot and ask them to make one recommendation of a, a, either a classic or a contemporary short story collection that uh, you would recommend to this audience. I'll start with you, Antonio. A short story collection, not by the same person. Chekhov. Chekhov, okay. Uh, And I'll go Catherine Mansfield, and particularly Bliss, which, if you haven't read, is a near... I mean, it's just so beautiful. And I'll... Excuse me. I'll go Flaubert, Three Tales. Yes. And I'm going to throw one in. I'm going to suggest David Constantine, Tea at the Midland, somebody contemporary, rather wonderful. Um, And thank you so much for being here today. Um... And please, will you join with me in thanking our panellists?